the devil is trying to once again prevent the return of Jesus. And how can he do this? Well, when we look in Matthew chapter 23, when Jesus is weeping over Israel after they've rejected him as Messiah, he makes an interesting proclamation. He says, you shall not see me again henceforth until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. So the prophetically, Jesus Christ linked his second coming to Israel, acknowledging him as Messiah, as right. Yeshua HaMashiach. Right. And so, so where does the Nephilim come into this? Well, the final Nephilim, who I believe is the Antichrist, he's the ultimate deception to try and prevent that from happening. He's going to present himself as Israel's Messiah to, prevent, to, to lure them away and deceive them because if they don't acknowledge Christ, Christ says he won't, they won't see him. He will not return. It's directly linked. And so now this is Satan's final attempt to try to once again stop the coming of Messiah. So many people today believe, as part of their end times views, that there will be a massive revival of the Jewish people or the state of Israel. One verse that's commonly used to support this claim is Matthew 23, verse 39. But was Jesus really talking about a future revival of the Jewish nation, or was he talking about something else? That's what we're here to find out. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is the Dance of Life podcast. My name is Tudor Alexander. Thanks so much for being with me today. Today was a bit of an unplanned episode, actually, because as usual, how these things work, I see something and I realize I need to speak on it and comment on it. And so I saw this YouTube Shorts video, which I put at the introduction of this episode, and I realized that in my entire End Time series, I did not address this verse. And it's a very significant verse. It's Matthew 23, verse 39. Now, of course, we have, if you've been with me in the the series, if you've gone through it, uh, then you, you know I have addressed the points that this video makes in many different ways. But the verse itself that the person in question is citing, which, again, this video is not unique. There are many people on TikTok and YouTube and Rumble and BitChute that are talking about these things. And so the the thing that I'm pointing out here is nothing new in the sense that these things are very common, they're very popular, they're very widely discussed. But are they right? Are they the truth is the question, and that's what we're here to find out. Because this this verse, Matthew 23, verse 39, is very, let's put it this way, easy to misinterpret. If you don't have context... And we're talking scriptural context, using scripture to interpret with scripture, historical context, cultural context, political context, prophetic context, understanding the context of the end times in general. If your view of the end times is incorrect, then you will look at this verse, and it's very easy to do so, to interpret it through the flesh, through a physical lens. And so my goal today is to edify you with the truth. And I hope that your eyes will see and your ears will hear because these things that we're going to talk about today are not very popular. They're controversial, unfortunately, but the truth always is controversial. So I saw this video and we're going to break it down in just a second because it's not too long. It's about a minute. But most people are deceived by the end times. I know I certainly was, and that's why I was motivated to create an end time series because there's no position in the end times, just like there's no denomination in Christianity that's the true denomination. 
True biblical Christianity has always been non-denominational. It's been the narrow road approach. And in the same way, end times views have to be the narrow road approach. And the narrow road takes into consideration everything. It's a nuanced approach. Because every end times views has something to offer you in some sense. Of course, some more than others. Dispensationalism, as an example, is has nothing to offer you. Now, that may insult you if you're a dispensationalist and you hold to those teachings. And if so, I invite you to check out the rest of my series, which I'm going to attach this episode to. Like I said, it was an unplanned episode, but nevertheless, I will put it part of that series. So if you're new to these ideas, if you're new to this series, then please go check it out. I lovingly and sternly encourage you to do so because most people are deceived about the end times. Because most people are futurists. They interpret things from a futurist lens. Now, I don't mean lasers and UFOs and aliens when I say futurism. Futurism is an umbrella of eschatology that interprets Bible prophecy in a very specific way, in a very literal way, in a very physical way. And there are many forms of futurism. There's premillennialism, there's dispensationalism, And so understanding where these beliefs come from is very, very important, which I talk about in the series. Because 500 years ago, the real beast, which is the Catholic papacy, created futurism through the Counter-Reformation. And the Counter-Reformation was established to destroy Protestantism. And it's almost successful as of the time of this video, for many reasons that I discuss in the series. Mystery Babylon will come to power. God has decreed it. But if you don't know who Mystery Babylon is, and certainly I've made plenty of episodes about her, even recently, some short ones you can check out, then you will be deceived. Because what happened 500 years ago is that Jesuits Manuel Lacunza, Francisco Ribera, and Cardinal Robert Bellarmine put together this new way of interpreting the scriptures that takes attention off of the beast by replacing a spiritual temple with a physical Jewish temple in the future, by replacing a political spiritual power as the beast with a personal antichrist that's going to come and walk into a Jewish temple. Do you see how these things are inversions? How they replaced years with days, 1260 years with days. Of course, there are days in Revelation and Daniel, but they're prophetic days, which are signifying years. I'm I'm not going to get too deeply into this because I have a whole series on these things. And if you have tuned in the series, then you already know. But I'm just discussing these things for people who may happen to drop by in this episode and you, all these things are new to you. And I truly hope that you will indulge me and indulge maybe any curiosity that you may have as a result of me speaking to you today, to go and edify yourself. But we're going to do our best to edify you here as well, because most people are deceived by futurism and all these futuristic things. Again, not lasers and aliens, but futurism is putting everything to the future. All of the reformers were historicists, meaning they saw Bible prophecy unfolding throughout history. God left us all this prophecy so that no matter when you were born, you could look in the Bible and say, where am I? Where am I, Lord? Where am I in the the timeline of things that you have ordained? 
And so Bible prophecy is valid for everybody, not just for a small group of people at the end of time. But if you need to hide your identity, if you're the real Antichrist power, then you will convince people that it's all about the future. And, oh, it's not here yet. Don't worry about the Antichrist. And so this is what futurism does. Now, another episode that's linked to this that's very important is actually the episode right before this in the series, because I'm tacking this to the end of the series. And the last one I did was also in relationship to this idea that there's a future revival among the Jews. And the verse in question in that episode is Romans 11, verse 26, where Paul says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. And of course, the question is, what is he talking about when he says Israel? And we'll touch on that a little bit today, but in the episode, there's a very deep exegesis that I go into to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Paul is not envisioning some future revival of the Jews. As many people believe, even if you're not dispensationalist, people believe this, that there's a future revival of the Jewish nation. But that's not what Paul is talking about. He was talking about a present reality. And Israel, as a result of the New Testament, which again, we'll touch on a little bit today, is a spiritual conglomerate, not a chosen people by blood and heritage, physical heritage and DNA. It's always been about God's plan of election, not who you're born from, not what your blood says. It is about God's sovereign purpose. And we'll touch on that as well today. But the previous episode, which is episode 30, I believe, in the series, touches on Romans 11 and who all Israel really means. What is Paul talking about? Because again, these types of verses are very challenging if you don't have context, if you don't really dig deep and you just take the surface level, which again, surface, I've talked about this before, what is on the surface is what your flesh interprets. Your flesh is always going to go for the low-hanging fruit, the obvious. What's the obvious? What's the physical explanation? When in fact, the Bible speaks of spiritual things. Just like when Jesus was talking about, you have to eat my body and, and drink my blood, and how lots of disciples left him at that point in time because they thought he was talking about literally eating his flesh, which of course no Jew would ever do and drinking blood, which is prohibited in the Old Testament. So they left. Why? Because they let their flesh interpret his words. And of course, today, the harlot, which is Mystery Babylon, which is the first beast, which is the Catholic Church, still interprets those words in the same way through its blasphemous teaching of transubstantiation. But I digress. Today is about Matthew 23. So check out that previous episode as well. Episode 30, which is on Romans 11. Very deep exegesis, therefore, you know, lots of documentation and proof that Paul is not talking about a future revival of the Jews. Futurism is wrong because it was invented by the Jesuits to hide the identity of the true beast, which is the Catholic papacy. And preterism, which is also another created ideology by the Jesuits, Luis de Alcazar, Preterism puts everything to the past, where you don't have to worry about it because it all it just concerned the Jews in 70 AD. Again, it's putting everything away from your present view of history and understanding where am I in history. The devil is always going to move you either to the right or to the left. He's not going to point you to the narrow road. 
The Bible tells you not to swerve to the right or to the left many times. So be wise, because preterism and futurism were created to distract you from the truth. And we'll touch on preterism a little bit today, because there are a growing number of preterists because they do not understand where this comes from and what what does it mean that things happened in the past? What is what does that actually mean? How do we interpret that? So today he's talking about Matthew 23, verse 39. And we're going to read it in context. We're going to look at all of the context. We're looking at historical, linguistic context, cultural context, prophetic context. We're going to look at a lot of different things. And we're going to watch this video. And I'll do some commentary on it really briefly. Again, it's not very long. It's about a minute. And also, it's not unique. There are so many people talking about these things where I just feel compelled to speak on it. And I hope that you will listen because most people are deceived about these things. So let's head to the video and see what's up. Okay, like I said, I'm going to offer a little bit of commentary, so I'll probably be stopping it here and there. And let's see what this guy says one more time. The devil is trying to once again prevent the return of Jesus. Okay, once again, meaning he tried before to, pre to prevent the return of Jesus. Where is that in the Bible exactly? Where is the devil trying to prevent the return of Jesus? We'll talk about this in just a second. And how can he do this? Well, when we look in Matthew chapter 23, there it is. Jesus is weeping over Israel after they've rejected him as Messiah. He makes an interesting proclamation. He says, you shall not see me again henceforth until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. I'm going to stop right here. It is an interesting proclamation. It's actually a fascinating proclamation, but not from the way that he is interpreting it. So the prophetically, Jesus Christ linked his second coming to Israel, acknowledging him as Messiah, as right. Yeshua HaMashiach. No, he did not. Hamashiach. Right. And so, so where does the Nephilim come into this? Well, the <laughs> Wait a minute. Where does the Nephilim come into this? What are the Nephilim? The Nephilim are giant hybrids that the fallen angels created somehow, probably with some sort of intermingling with women or gen genetic modification. Yeah, there's evidence for that. The Bible talks about giants. The book of Enoch reports giants. There are many cultures that have you know, legends of giants with six uh, fingers, six toes, red hair. It's a pretty consistent thing. So obviously there were giants in the past. There's fossil evidence, skeletal evidence. But the Nephilim today being some sort of Nephilim bloodline that's going to lead to a personal antichrist, this is nowhere in the Bible. This is a teaching of men. This is a fairy tale. Final Nephilim, who I believe is the Antichrist, he's the ultimate deception to try and prevent that from happening. He's going to present himself as Israel's Messiah to, to, to lure them away and deceive them because if they don't acknowledge Christ, Christ says he won't, they won't see him. He will not return. It's directly linked. And so, so he will not return if the Jews don't do something. Keep that, keep that in mind because that, that is... A, an incredibly wrong perception of the end times, of, of God's sovereignty, of prophecy, of so many things. It's directly linked. And so now this is Satan's final attempt to try to once again stop the coming of Messiah. Okay. There you go. Satan is having his last attempt to try to stop the Messiah from coming, from Jesus from returning. And so he's going to impersonate some sort of Jewish Messiah and lure them away. And that way, as long as the Jews don't do anything, then Jesus can never return. 
Is this what we have to make of the end times of Scripture? What does it say about Jesus if we believe these things? What does it say about God's sovereignty? What does it say about prophecy? You have to ask yourself always, what are the assumptions that go underneath a particular belief? And so we're going to look at that today. The first one that I want you to consider is that what does it mean to define a revival? Like, how do you define a revival? Let's put it that way. How do you define a Jewish revival? What does that actually mean? There are ministries like One for Israel Ministries that are spreading the gospel to Israel, and they're they're doing so. Jews have converted throughout time. There's Messianic Jews. But today, the population of the state of Israel, the Christian population, <clears throat> is under 2%. It's under 2%. So that gives you an idea of how much revival there's happening in the state of Israel. Now, of course, dispensationalists will say, well, you know, it just hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen. We need the the tribulation to happen. And, you know, the rapture is going to pull people away, the the believers, and then the Jews will finally realize Jesus is the Messiah, and they'll come to Christ. There'll be a massive revival. Well, first off, the rapture isn't happening. How, How do you know that the rapture is happening? What if it's not happening? And there's a whole episode on that that shows you proof through Scripture and through history where these beliefs come from. And what does it actually mean when Jesus is returning? Yeah, we will meet Jesus in the air. But that's after the mark of the beast is enforced. The people who are left alive will be brought into the air with the people that are being resurrected. We're all going to meet Jesus in the air, absolutely. So if you see a false Jesus show up on the scene, then you know that it's a false Jesus because you're, you're not going to meet him in the air. But nevertheless, the, the rapture is a false teaching. And God would not show preference like that to people who he has chosen to save. He's not going to rapture away some people he's chosen to save and then let others endure tribulation. And of course, tribulation has been throughout time. All these things I've talked about over and over again. How many millions of people, Christians, have been persecuted in the last 2,000 years? It's crazy. How many people have been killed through communism, the Holodomor, the Inquisition, the Crusades? persecution of the reformers, the Sunday laws. So many people have died, and none of that counts as tribulation for dispensationalists. But nonetheless, how do you define a revival? There are people converting that are Jewish, but at what point does it is it definable and say, oh, now it's a revival. Now, now, for sure, Jesus is coming. Is it 50% of the population? Is it 75? What is the number? How do you objectively measure that? And of course, there is no way to objectively measure that because it's a totally subjective measurement. Even look at revivals today. Do you 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 define revival by what we see in the United States with like the Asbury Revival or these various colleges that are supposedly having revivals? Is that how we define revival? By having concerts and deliverances and supernatural, or I should say spiritual experiences and crying and and jumping up and down. Like what, how do you define revival? Because the Bible defines it in a very different way than what we define it today as. The Bible first and foremost defines, I should say shows revival. Every time the Jews were apostate and they came back to Christ, back to God, there was sackcloth and ashes, repentance, grief, godly grief, reform. 
throwing away idols. I mean, it was it was a very different type of revival than what you see today, which is all about the flesh. People are, go, where's the next revival? Oh, let's go to that campus. Oh my gosh, yes, super worship songs and people are frothing at the mouth and demons are leaving their body. That, that's revival. That's where the Holy Spirit is. Well, wait a minute. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent. So how does that work? You see how this is going backwards in time? Where in pagan belief systems, you had special places, holy places. Let's go to this campus. That's where God is present more. No, God is present in your heart. He's present everywhere. If you repent and believe. And of course, the Bible teaches you that your repentance and belief is being granted to you by God in the first place. So there's that to deal with as well. But how do you define revival? It's completely subjective. Again, the population of Israel, the Christian population, is less than 2%. They recently tried to pass an anti-missionary law, I believe sometime in earlier this year. This is 2023 now in the time of this video. It was very controversial. I don't know where the status of that or if they're going to try to pass it again. But the law was basically, you cannot try to spread the gospel, otherwise you will be put in prison for two years. So is Israel moving towards a revival? I don't think so. And there are many other reasons why we should question this teaching that there's going to be a future revival of the Jews. But definitely one of them is that revival is completely subjective. If you go by the by the Bible, by the how the historical revivals have happened in actual Israel in the Old Testament, then it's a very different story. So if you see now here's here's the kicker. If you see a charismatic revival suddenly sweep the nation of Israel. It's certainly possible because, again, the beast created a false prophecy. It created a false prophecy 500 years ago that is now fulfilling, and people are buying it. So maybe there will be a charismatic revival of Israel. Is that Does that fulfill prophecy? Well, no, because the Bible doesn't prophesy of revival in the end times. That's another important thing to take into context. The Bible teaches of apostasy, and I can prove it to you. First and foremost, you have in Revelation 13, the second beast, the false prophet, which, again, is a political power in a system, not a person. It's not an individual, which is what futurism teaches you, because, again, futurism is designed to hide the truth, the identity of the real political power in the beast. But the first beast, which created all these false eschatologies will be helped by a second beast. And that second beast is the United States, which is the false prophet, which is working false signs and wonders like the charismatic movement and the purpose-driven church and, you know, all this concerts, worship Bethel, Hillsong, all this progressive Christianity, all these false signs and wonders that are leading people back to a Christian nationalist system. And I talk about all of this. As, if it sounds crazy to you, if it's the first time you've heard this, I can understand. So go back and watch those previous episodes, especially the one on the counterfeit spirit. You'll definitely see plenty of proof there. But the Bible teaches that in Revelation 13, the second beast arises that deceives people into worshiping the first beast again. So there's deception at the end of time, and they're going to take the mark of the beast they're so deceived. And they'll, they'll be destroyed as a result. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, another very popular verse, Paul says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. 
and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Now, there is a personal element to the Antichrist power of the earth. And I've talked about that. Of course, the papacy has who? The God King, which is the Pope. The Pope was called Our Lord God the Pope in the 1500s. I bet you didn't know that. He was also called Our Lord the Pope. All of this is documented. The Pope sits in between the cherubim on his golden throne, which is a counterfeit of the Ark of the Covenant, proclaiming to forgive sins and calling himself Holy Father, which is a title only attributed to God the Father in both the Testaments, Old Testament and New Testament. So these things should be taken very seriously because the Bible does warn you about an Antichrist power, and we'll talk about the word Antichrist, with a personal representative, but it doesn't warn you about the Antichrist that's coming, that's going to walk into a Jewish temple. It, war- it warns you about deception, and specifically about an inv- in a, a counterfeit infiltrator, that's the word I was looking for, that comes into the body of Christ, which is the church, and deceives and creates false converts. But in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 through 4, which also another very popular verse, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myth. Boy, does that sound like today. Nephilim, bloodline, antichrist coming to deceive the Jews. This is exactly what this verse is warning you of. Wandering off into myths and seeking seductive, provocative theories for their itching ears. No such thing. Matthew 24, verse 4 through 12. Jesus' signs of the end of the age. Let's see what Jesus has to say. And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. The first thing that Christ tells us in his famous discourse is that Beware that nobody deceives you. This is the context for everything he's going to say. But let's read what he has to say. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place. But the end is not yet. All of these things are being fulfilled. The the false Christs have increased over the last hundred years especially. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you shall be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now, he's not talking about the great tribulation, so don't read that into his words. Tribulation has been throughout time. Christians being fed to lions and crucified and hunted down like animals. That counts as tribulation, folks. You and I have it easy compared to people in Pakistan, people in some of these Muslim countries like Indonesia who are Christians underground in China. That's tribulation. People have been experiencing tribulation throughout the church age. But moving on, verse 10, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Does that sound like revival to you? And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Does that sound like false? Does that sound like revival? It sounds like false revivals to me. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So false prophets will arise to deceive people. Many are going to fall away. 
the love of many will grow cold and they'll hate each other and betray one another. Does that any of that sound like a future revival? Now, this, this discourse, Matthew 24, is right after the verse we're breaking down today, which is Matthew 23, verse 39, where Jesus says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So if that's teaching a future revival of the Jewish nation, that the second return of that the return of Christ is incumbent upon, it's dependent upon, then for him to then say right after that, well, listen, what are the signs of the end of the age? Well, there's going to be deception, false prophets, false Christs, people whose love is going to grow cold, they're going to betray one another, they're going to be deceived. That does that's a contradiction. That doesn't make sense. You see the problem? So we have to read things in context. But verse 24 of the same chapter says the same thing. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Again, who's the elect? It's by God's sovereign choice. It's not by the chosen people based on your bloodline. Certainly not the Jews because the Jews have been done away with as the chosen people. And gosh, that's so contra- that's so controversial these days. People even call you anti-Semitic if you say something like that. But I can prove it to you, and if you have eyes to hear, eyes to see and ears to hear, you'll see the truth. Especially today, Israel, the state of Israel, most of those people aren't even religious. They're atheists. They're liberals. They are hyper-liberals. There's more homosexuality in Tel Aviv and in Israel than probably any other place. A lot of pedophiles are refugees there, refugees there because they have very lax laws on such things. A lot of atheism. I mean, that's anything to do, nothing to do with God. They could care less about God in Israel. So they're not the chosen people, folks. You have to wake up from that spell. And it truly is a spell. It's a spell by Mystery Babylon designed to distract you because the true chosen people have always been by God's sovereign electing choice throughout history. Even in the nation of Israel, you had the remnant. But the Bible teaches of apostasy at the end of time. It doesn't teach of revival. Very clearly so. Deception, things get worse. This is why now the next thing you need to take in context is this idea of synergism, which is the entire underpinning of this argument made in this video. Now, synergism and is contrasted to monergism. And if you don't know what those words are, it's okay. It just refers to how are people being saved? Is it God doing something and then we have to do something too? Is it dependent on us? Or is it dependent fully on God, which is monergism? Now, the gospel in the Bible, I'll give you a hint, is monergistic. God is doing the work. But today we are so obsessed with free will, especially in the United States, with being able to have our rights and choose autonomously and have autonomous freedom, we the people, all these things, these are Luciferian lies, people. And they're going to rule the final paradigm that's coming on the earth, which is going to be a false light. The, the, Rev, the French Revolution, which I talk about in, I believe, episode 14, was created to begin this dialectic. And the French Revolution was completely Luciferian. Of course, you had the Enlightenment before that, and you had the Renaissance. You've had the lie from the Garden of Eden through Gnosticism. It's all the same bird. But what do these things teach you? They teach you that you can choose without influence. 
And again, what are the assumptions of the belief in question? When you accept a belief, you have to question the assumptions, and most people don't. And so they just let the belief sink in, and that's how the spell works, because you don't question the assumptions. If you can choose free of influence, meaning unconditionally, that means that you can choose the good. And if you can choose the good, then you can govern yourself. Do you see? Do you see how this works? Do you see how the garden, the life from the Garden of Eden has crept its way into the church? Because today people believe that, well, you know, Jesus died, but I have to take advantage of it through my free will. Otherwise, you know, I'm not saved. When in fact, the Bible teaches you that God has chosen people to save and irreversibly changes their heart by interfering in their lives, by taking over their will and revealing himself who is irresistible and forever changing their lives. That's what the Bible teaches, because in that way, all glory goes to God and all credit goes to God. But if you do something, so much as believing, you now people say, oh, is faith a work? Is it not a work? That's a way to get lost in philo- philosophical weeds. It doesn't matter whether faith is a work or not. It matters who is getting the glory. Most people in history have not been saved. The Bible says we are dead in our sins, meaning we cannot do anything for ourselves. You, you cannot possibly believe in God and, and come to God because you're dead in your sins. You are a slave to the momentum of this world. Because, what's the first assumption? That you can choose without influence. Well, guess what? You can't choose without influence. That's not what the Bible teaches you, and that's also not what science teaches you. If you know anything about science, nothing that I, right now as I'm talking to you, most of the things that are happening are not under my control. I'm not beating my heart. I'm not filtering my blood. I'm not detoxifying my kidneys. I'm not doing anything important. I'm just talking to you. I'm not even willingly blinking my eyes. They're just happening. So all the things that we take credit for, most of them are not under our control. That's a whole can of worms. But my point is this. When you have a synergistic attitude, it defaults to a works-based understanding, meaning you have to do something. Because if you are the one who chose to have faith, then guess what? Then you can also choose to lose faith and you can lose your salvation. That means you have to work to maintain your salvation. This is why a lot of the Protestant churches have lost their way because they have adopted synergism, which is a Catholic teaching. Catholicism is a works-based religion. It enslaves you to sacraments and running the rat wheel of good works in order to be saved. Of course you do good works, but you do good works because you're saved, because the Holy Spirit is living within you and giving you new life and a new heart, not because you need to maintain your salvation or that you don't have it yet and you need to like keep the pace so that you don't lose it. Now you are robbing glory from God as the one who owns salvation Because you have to do something, and of course, if you do something and a billion other people didn't, and they went to hell, and gosh, there was something special about you, that you made it. You believed, despite the odds, despite being dead in your sins and totally incapable of coming to God, boy, you did it. You chose the good. Do you see how this works? And it also robs you of peace, because you're not trusting in God. Ultimately, you're trusting in yourself. 
This is a synergistic attitude. And there's much to say about it, but when you apply it to end times views, we see a major problem. Because now the return of Jesus, the most prolific event in all of history, when Jesus reveals himself in full glory to all of creation, this is the moment that literally all of history is boiling down to. And you're going to tell me that that moment is completely dependent upon what a small group of people will do. Do you see the grave error in this belief? In fact, it's not too different from post-millennialism, which says that we need to Christianize the world in order for Jesus to appear. It's going to get better and better. Well, post-millennialism hasn't read the Bible, apparently. At least not the verses that I just cited to you at the beginning of this episode that teach about great deception, false signs and wonders, so possibly false revivals, that are leading people into a nationalist, Christian nationalist system. Hmm, maybe those kind of revivals. The Seven Mountain Mandate. If you know anything about that, and who actually sits on seven mountains, which is the mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots, Rome is the city of seven hills, who do you think gave out the Seven Mountain Mandate and is promoting these Protestant Christian nationalists into believing that we need to Christianize the world, meaning we need to conquer these mountains for God. We need to conquer business and politics and all these things and make them all Christian. Really? Gosh, that doesn't sound like the Bible to me. Actually, it sounds like what the Bible warns you about, which is a union of church and state as it existed on the earth for 1400 years. But all of these people are synergistic because they believe we need to do something. Do you see see how this all ties together? If you believe you have to do something and then it's on you and not on God, then you are inevitably enslaved to the physical world. Inevitably. Because you have to do something in the physical world in order for the outcome to happen. When in fact the Bible teaches you that there's Bible prophecy, that God predetermines events. Isaiah 46.10, I declare the end from the beginning. That, that there's Bible prophecy of when Christ will return. Of course, nobody knows the exact day, but he's given us the season and the signs to watch for. We haven't made it yet to Mystery Babylon where the kings of the earth will give their power to a Christian nationalist system. And again, if this is news to you, go check out my series. But we're not there yet. We're not there. We're not at the mark of the beast yet. So there's a few things that need to happen. But those things are predetermined. There's predestined outcomes that God has done to reveal his glory, both as a savior and as a judge. Because when he returns, having allowed the Antichrist power to take power, which it will, it will take power. There's not going to be a revival. There'll be a false revival, possibly, because people will come to a Christian nationalist system. But nonetheless, God has allowed that to happen so that he will reveal his power as the judge of the earth when he returns and destroy that system once and for all. But all of this is contrary to the Bible. And in fact, it aligns with the Talmud. If you know anything about the Talmud and the Jewish idea of the Messiah, it's the Jews that have to do something to bring about the Messiah. Does that sound familiar to you? See how these things all kind of play into the same satanic strategy? This sets you up for the Antichrist, folks. For, for the false Christ that's on the horizon, for the false system. We, the people, we have to do something. The Great Awakening. 
This is all coming on the pipeline, and so many people will be deceived, just like the Bible predicts. Just like Jesus told you, just like the apostles told you. There'll be many false signs and wonders, and people will believe that. But if you believe that there is a future reign of Christ, then you are even more likely to fall into this trap. But the Bible teaches you that he's ruling while his enemies are being put under his feet. When Christ ascended, he fulfilled the vision in Daniel 7 of the Son of Man, being presented before the Ancient of Days and taking dominion over all things. Now he's ruling while his enemies are being put under his feet. Do you see how that works? Because if you believe that's a future situation, then all of us who believe the truth (laughs) that the millennial reign is a spiritual reign where Jesus is reigning from heaven while his enemies are being put under his feet through through prophecy, then those of us who see the truth will be the enemies that need to be put under the Antichrist's feet. Do you see how this works? So it's very important to get your eschatology right, your study of the end times, because we are in the home stretch. We're in the 100 meters. This is the final set of events, and many will be deceived. But 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24 through 26, very important couple of verses. Commit them to memory. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule, enemy, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Why is this so significant? Because there is no future millennial reign of Christ in Jerusalem. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. How is death destroyed? Well, if you read the scriptures when Jesus returns... There's a worldwide resurrection. That's how death is destroyed. Those of us who remain will be transformed. We get new bodies. And those who passed away will be resurrected into their new bodies. Death will be destroyed. Where is your sting, death? That's when this will be fulfilled. But that happens at the return of Christ, meaning there's no room for a millennial reign. He's reigning right now. The millennium is a metaphor. It's a figurative number, or it's a figurative period of time. It's a long period of time of the church age between the ascension and the return of Christ. So if you are deceived on that, if you believe in a future reign and you believe in a synergistic attitude of salvation, then you will be deceived because the lie from the Garden of Eden is that you have to do something, that you must be the the charge over the outcome, that you're the sovereign over your life. And that lie is being used yet again, just like it was used throughout the last thousands and thousands of years to deceive humanity. In this final age, it is being used to rally people to the beast through post-millennialism, through this idea of, oh my gosh, there has to be a Jewish revival. We have to do something unless we do something, then Christ won't return. The sovereign God of the universe does not depend on your actions. If you believe that, then you don't believe in the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible does not wait after mankind. If that's the case, no prophecy would have ever been fulfilled. Just think about that. No prophecy would ever be fulfilled. But another important thing, again, another important piece of context, is that the church is the fulfillment of the Hebrew Scriptures. And what that means is that the chosen people are not the Jews. 
again, such a controversial topic, and, and it really shouldn't be if you if you're willing to simply look at the truth. None of the apostles nor Jesus taught that the Jews were still the chosen people as a result of the New Testament. The Jews were chosen to bring about the Messiah and to create the templates and the, and the, the prefigurements, the types and shadows, like the Levitical system, like the kings, like the prophets. All of these things pointed to the reality that was revealed through Christ. But if you believe there's still the chosen people, now you're creating a division where the Bible unites. There's neither Jew nor Greek. And there's so many things that we looked at. These are just a few, Galatians 6, verse 16. But a Jew, oh, sorry, this is uh, Romans. This is Galatians. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Again, how does Paul see Israel? Well, most of the time he sees it as a spiritual conglomerate. Sometimes he refers to the physical Israel, but... That's when he's talking to the Jews. Romans 2, verse 29. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Do you see why this is so important? So when you argue back in Romans 11 that when Paul says, in this way all Israel will be saved, and he's so concerned about a Jewish revival 2,000, 3,000 years, whatever it's going to be, from from his present time, you're bringing in attitudes and beliefs that were not at all part of his mindset at the time. Because in other places, in fact, in Romans earlier, what does he say? A a Jew, as of the New Testament, is not one who is outwardly, in the sense physical by the flesh, but one who is inwardly. His praise is not from man, but from God, meaning you're not boasting in your lineage like the Pharisees did. Remember the Pharisees were like, oh, our father is Abraham. What did Jesus say? Do you remember? He said, your father is the devil because who you really belong to is Satan. You are evil and you need to repent. And everybody was in that category before we were saved. That's who your father was, the devil, because he took over the world through the fall. But nonetheless, you can't boast in your lineage anymore. Say, oh, I'm, I'm an Israelite, so God has to favor me. Nope. It's always been about God's sovereign choice. You're not, a, you're not a chosen person unless you've been born again. But now, how do you get born again? Well, it's by God's sovereign electing purpose. So God is the one who gets control. God is the one who gets glory. God is the one who gets credit for all of it. Very important. But dispensationalism rejects these things, and it insists on remaining in the Old Testament. Here's another one in Romans, chapter 9, verse 6 through 16. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Oops, that's a major problem for dispensationalists. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this next time of the year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, 
but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. These couple of verses destroy any idea that it is we that have to do something to bring about the return of Christ. They destroy the idea that the Jews have to have a revival, otherwise Jesus won't return. They destroy the idea that the Jews is a physical nation. The state of Israel is the chosen people. Because first and foremost, you can't even reliably trace your lineage back to the biblical Israel today. There's many problems with that theory. The state of Israel is a political state. It's a counterfeit of the biblical Israel because it was made by the mother of counterfeits, which is the papacy. The Pope met with the father of Zionism in the early 1900s, Theodor Herzl. Fifty years later, you had a couple world wars, changing around territories, and lo and behold, the state of Israel was created through the Rothschilds and through Hitler, through the transfer agreement, through all these different agents of the beast. Of course, if you know your history, these things aren't surprising, but the Jews are not the chosen people. In fact, even the Talmud records that for 40 years before the destruction of the temple, all of the signs that the Jews were relying on the Day of Atonement, they would usually get these different signs, like a handkerchief would turn white from red and all this stuff. Jews loved their signs. Well, guess what? For 40 years in a row, all the signs that they were relying on were denied. They would not get signs anymore. What happened 40 years before the destruction of the temple? Well, if you count inclusively, that takes you to AD 31, which is how the Jews counted. AD 31, do you know anything that happened that was significant in AD 31 that would affect whether the Jews would be forgiven on the Day of Atonement for 40 years? Hopefully you do. That was the crucifixion of Jesus. And the Jews that continued and did not convert and continued in their ways, the Pharisees, were given a very clear message that you are no longer forgiven by the ways that you relied on, because those ways were designed to testify of Christ. The woman in Revelation 12, before the birth of the Messiah, is Israel. The woman that is after the birth of the Messiah, that runs away from the dragon, who is the dragon? It's the first beast, it's the papacy, it's the union of church and state that was persecuting believers. It's the same woman. Do you see the point? It's always been the same body of believers, the bride of Christ. The Old Testament, it was the virgin, who was also pretty much the bride of Christ. But if you confuse the bride of Christ with the church, which is the harlot, that's a big problem, which a lot of people do that today. You also, as a dispensationalist, create another bride through the chosen people. Christ has his bride, but wait, well, there's also the chosen people who who they have a kind of a special standing with God. Why? Because they're Jews. Really? When the Bible says that to be a Jew is to be born again, that's what it really means as of the New Testament? 
all these things were fulfilled through Jesus and you are still hanging on to the Old Testament. It's very sad. You also have, you know, episode number six, if you look in the series, I talked about the temple, how it's a spiritual reality. The body of Christ equals the temple, equals the church, equals the kingdom, equals the Lord's table, equals the house of God. All these things are synonymous with one another. It's a spiritual reality of the decentralized connection that we have with one another and with Christ through being born again. It's the fellowship we have with God and with each other. That is the church of true believers. And that church is the fulfillment of God's plan because it is the summation of God's elect in Christ. But if you believe in a physical temple that the Antichrist has to walk into, then your attention is on the Jews yet again. When actually the Bible warns you that there is a political power that walks into the temple, i.e. the real temple, the spiritual temple, which is the church. And this power proclaims itself to be God. Do you know any power in history that's done that? I do. It's the man sitting in between the cherubim, counterfeiting the Ark of the Covenant, proclaiming to forgive sins, and calling himself a title that is only reserved for Almighty God. And that power fulfilled all of the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, but people still fight against that because they want to hang on to the teachings of men and all the fairy tales, like in this video of a Nephilim bloodline antichrist. Gosh, it's so silly. Even the 70 weeks of Daniel that the dispensationalists will acknowledge is fulfilled historically. Of course, they have it wrong and they believe that the 70th week is in the future, which is a total lie. There's no prophecy in the history of Bible prophecy where the the prophecy itself is split and, and the gap between one part of the prophecy and another is longer than the prophecy itself. There is no prophecy in the Bible that does such a thing, which should tell you something as to anybody teaching you that the 70th week of Daniel is still to come. No, the 70th week of Daniel was fulfilled. And in fact, that prophecy was given to Daniel and Gabriel said 70 weeks are cut off for your people. Meaning, the, the Jews have 70 more weeks, prophetic weeks, 490 years at the time, to fulfill all these things. And if you read the prophecy, it is about Christ. And when that prophecy ends, is AD 34. Daniel 9, prophecy of the Messiah. But it ends in AD 34, if you plot it out historically. Now, what happened in AD 34 that's very significant to all of this things, all of the things that we're talking about? Well, They stoned Stephen. He was the first martyr. And that made everybody run away, dispersed to different places. They left Jerusalem. Peter got his dream about approaching the Gentiles. Paul was converted. The gospel went out to the nations. The time for the Jews was up. That's confirmed by Revelation 12 that I just cited with the woman before and after. It's the same woman. It's not two women. It's the same woman. It's always been the body of believers. That's confirmed by the 70 weeks. That's confirmed by the Talmud. Even the Talmud tells you that God rejected the Jews for 40 years before he finally passed judgment on them. He gave them 40 years of signs. Like, hey, you're rejected. You're rejected. Stop trying to seek forgiveness through your works. What Paul just said in in, uh, Romans 9, so that it doesn't depend on human will or works or exertion. Do you see why this is so significant, people? I really hope you do. 
because these things are false teachings. And again, I go into great depth in my end time series, especially in the previous episode on Romans 11. But look, the last piece of context I want to give you, actually, there's two more. There's, I, I'm mistaken. There's two more. Another one is the nature of the Antichrist. I forgot to talk about this, but the nature of the Antichrist, the word Antichrist is not talking about a personal Antichrist. Like, it doesn't say the Antichrist. John, this, this title, this word is actually only from John's letters. It's not in the book of Revelation. It's not in the book of Daniel. The books of Daniel and Revelation talk about beasts and powers and political kingdoms. And they're very consistent. Not talking about individuals. However, the word Antichrist is used, and it's used in John's letters. Now, what is the context? Remember the word of the day. What's the context for John's usage of the word Antichrist? Well, let's see. 1 John 2, verse 18 through 19. Warning against or concerning Antichrists, plural. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us. Uh-oh, that means that they were part of us. So how does that work? But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. This is talking about false converts. People who say they're Christian, but they're not. And they end up being false teachers, apostates, heretics. So that it might be plain that they were not of us. Meaning they were not chosen by God to be saved. Because if God chooses you to be saved, then he will sustain you. You are not going to lose your faith. You're not going to apostatize. That's why it is plain who is chosen by their perseverance. If you persevere, that means God has persevered and he's chosen you. Very consistent teaching in the Bible. Not a very popular one today, but nonetheless, this is what the Bible teaches. The word antichrist is used by John to refer to people who are false converts, false teachers, warring against the gospel in place of Christ. And of course, he also says spirit of antichrist in other part of his letters. And the spirit of antichrist has been on the earth since the cross, because the devil was kicked out in Revelation 12. He had no more way to accuse people. Why is that significant? Well, he knew that with the gospel, that his time was up, that he would be judged. And so he infiltrated the world, and the spirit of Antichrist has been on the earth since then. Since John's days, it was obvious. Christ came, and with that, the devil was kicked out, and the Antichrist spirit has been on the earth. Now, that's very important. It's a very different understanding than believing that the Antichrist is some personal charming figure, possibly a communist dictator, a Muslim dictator, maybe even a false Jewish messiah that walks into a Jewish temple and proclaims himself to be God. This is a completely different reality because the Bible, as usual, is teaching you about spiritual things. The Antichrist is not a person. It's a power. It's an Antichrist spirit. And that spirit's been around for a very long time. It's not coming into the future. And another thing is that the power, the Antichrist power, the mystery Babylon, which is the final iteration of this power, will come to power. It will come to power. It will be successful. Because God has decreed for people to worship the beast. 
because those who are not saved by his sovereign will and grace will be deceived and take the mark of the beast and worship the beast. Those who have not been written in the name of the book of the Lamb before the found, slain before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? That means if you were not predestined by God to learn the truth, you will take the mark of the beast. Now, don't listen to that and then freak out, say, oh my gosh, am I saved or not? If God is working in your life and you're aware of the gospel and you believe the gospel, then yes, you have a relationship with Jesus. You're not going to lose that because he will not lose you. That's the encouragement. But again, the point is, what is the nature of the Antichrist? And it's not a personal one. There is the man of sin. There is the man of lawlessness. There is the son of perdition, which, by the way, the son of perdition is only used for who in the Bible? Do you know? It's used for Judas, who was a false convert, an infiltrator who betrayed Christ. He was very close to Christ. And he was also in charge of the money. Isn't that interesting? Who do you know who is in charge of the money, who's supposed to be very close to Christ and yet is betraying him? Another point that the papacy is the Antichrist power on the earth. The papacy is the one that's in charge of the money. They're the wealthiest. Remember, Mystery Babylon is is dressed in gold and jewels and opulence. She's also dressed in red and purple, but there's a whole thing on that with the bishops and cardinals. But nonetheless, that is a Judas figure. And of course, the Pope is the maxim of that. He's the, he's the man of sin. He's the representative, the one that's supposed to be for Christ, but in fact is actually completely against him. So the nature of the Antichrist is another thing to take into context. So now when we've taken all of this into context, the nature of the Antichrist, the fact that the Jews are not the chosen people, It's always been by election, the fact that synergism is a false teaching, that God has predestined the outcome. He's not depending on anybody to come back, certainly not depending on the Jews to have a revival in order for him to return, that the Bible teaches of apostasy at the end of time and deception, and the the Jewish state of Israel right now is, there's nothing going on with Christianity there. There's a few people converting, but again, less than 2%. Taking all of that into context, now we look at the linguistic context. And in Matthew 23, verse 39, I'm going to pull it up here. Okay, so this is uh, 39, yeah. Lament over Jerusalem. Let's read this in context. O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hand gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, meaning you will be judged. The temple is going to be destroyed. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There is so much here. And again, if you have only fleshly eyes, you will misinterpret this. Christ is lamenting over Jerusalem. And because he's a teacher, he is the teacher. He is teaching When he says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed he come in the name of the Lord. That's not a random quote. He is quoting a psalm because this is what people did to bring to mind the entire psalm because everybody knew their scriptures. Just like when he was on the cross and he quoted Psalm 22 when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some people believe that Jesus is 
crying out because the Father separated himself from Jesus, which is nonsense. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. There's no separation between him and the Father. But he, what he was doing, he was bringing to mind Psalm 22, which is, that's the opening line. And if you read Psalm 22, it's all about Jesus. And specifically how he's redeemed and resurrected and victorious. So he's showing who he is as the suffering servant and also that he will be victorious in his last dying breaths. This is what he's doing through Psalm 22 and quoting it. Same thing here. He's quoting a psalm, and that psalm is Psalm 118. Now, Psalm 118 is a bit longer. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it does say some very important things. And in verse 22, verse 22 to 23, it says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. What's going on here? Well, obviously, this is talking about the Messiah. Who is the stone that the builders rejected? It's Jesus. He's become the cornerstone of the new temple, of the new reality. Gosh, this is just so much, so profound and so fascinating. Jesus is lamenting over Jerusalem that they are so stuck in the flesh, that they don't see what they should be seeing. The cornerstone of the builders, who are the builders? The builders are the Jews, the Hebrews, who built up the types and shadows that were supposed to point to the the actual reality of the incarnation. And when they got the incarnation, they rejected it. The builders rejected the stone, which was the rock. The rock is Christ. The rock throughout the Old Testament is Christ. And they rejected the stone. Well, guess what? That stone became the cornerstone of the new temple. Your house is left to you desolate. You're going to be judged for hanging on to your ways and rejecting me. The house will be destroyed. There's not going to be anything left of it. I'm the the new temple. I'm the the new cornerstone. The body of Christ is the temple, is the church, is the kingdom. This is what they didn't get. And he's quoting that psalm to them when he's lamenting over Jerusalem. Do you see how profound this is? He's not saying, you're going to have to have a future charismatic revival in order for me to return. That's not at all what he's saying. He's lamenting because pretty soon he's going to have to go and get crucified. And then he's going to be resurrected and he's going to ascend to take rulership. And you won't see him. Meaning you won't be in his presence physically anymore and get to enjoy that. The only way you will see him is when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, what does that mean? Well, the Psalm 118 is the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Until you see that, until you recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, you won't see it. You see what he's saying? You are, you've missed your chance to see the Messiah. And you won't see me until you see what Psalm 118 has to say, until you realize that you as the builders have rejected the cornerstone. And when you do see that, you will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And by the way, in Psalm 118 verse 23, it says, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So the fact that 
You say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The fact that the stone is the builder's, the stone that the builders rejected is the cornerstone. All these things were the Lord's doing. God is the God of salvation, not because he offers salvation, but because he completes it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So very important that we address the kind of seeing that is being talked about here. Because in Luke 10, verse 23 through 24, Jesus says, then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. How blessed was that generation to see the the living God, to, to see the incarnation. And of course, most of the Jews rejected it. Even the apostles, they were like, when are you going to take over the Roman Empire? They thought that there was going to be this conquering Messiah that was going to come. Well, guess what? If you don't accept the suffering servant, which the Jews of today have not, they in fact, the Jews of today don't even have the same messianic views as the Jews of 2,000 years ago. The Jews of 2,000 years ago expected a supernatural conquering king, which, of course, Jesus will return as just that. And if you haven't accepted him as the suffering servant on your behalf, then you will be judged. But the Jews of today don't even expect a supernatural Messiah. They believe in two Messiahs. And one is Ben David, one is Ben Joseph. But they're both, anybody could be these, and they're they're political in nature. Do you see how far Judaism has strayed from the truth? But nonetheless, the Jews expected something, and they they didn't understand. They didn't see what the prophets had warned them and, and prophesied about. Like with Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, they were so focused on the flesh, which is what dispensationalism and Judaism, and everybody who believes in a future revival of the Jews, is focused on. They don't see the truth. Now, the word see in Matthew 23, uh, verse 39, let's go to it again. The word see, let's actually go to the KJV uh, and see, bless, for I say to you, shall see, Edo, the word is Ido. It's used, it's a very interesting word because it's talking about perceiving. It's not just literal seeing. And other places where this is used, again, linguistic context, let's take a look. Matthew 13, verse 14. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. The word for perceive here is the same as the word that Jesus used back in Matthew 23, 39. Matthew 24, verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. What what is this seeing referring to? Is it talking about when you see some physical thing happening? Of course, there's some component to that, but let the reader understand. Meaning, when you perceive the abomination of desolation, that's when you need to flee to Judea. You need to understand that these things are, you need to interpret correctly. That's what this is meaning when it says see. It's not referring just to physical seeing. Matthew 24, verse 33. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Again, see as in perceive. 
because it's the lesson of the fig tree. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Meaning you recognize from certain signs, you interpret, that when you see certain signs like the fig leaves, you know that there's a particular season. You're interpreting things. You're seeing. So also, when you see all these things, you know that the end, that he is near at the very gates. Meaning when you perceive and understand these signs that I'm revealing to you correctly, then you will see clearly. So seeing is used in a spiritual sense. John 3, verse 3, same word. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Is the kingdom of God a physical reality when, when you're born again, you suddenly have a like infrared vision and you see, oh, there it is. No, you see spiritually the kingdom of God. You see it spiritually because it's a spiritual reality. So again and again, the Bible teaches us that we have to recognize signs of the end times. One more is Luke, verse 29 through 31. The lesson of the fig tree, it's a parallel verse, but it's worded worded a little differently. And he told them the parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. So again, it's recognizing that something is happening. You recognize the fig tree. You recognize the signs of the age. You see. But most people today do not see because they're looking at physical, fleshly interpretations. So, what do we make of Matthew 23, verse 39? Was Jesus talking about spiritual things or literal things? Well, it's pretty obvious he wasn't talking about a future revival of the state of Israel because this was concerning Psalm 118. Psalm 118 has to do with the Messiah. He's lamenting Jerusalem because he's going to leave. He's going to be leaving soon. He's going to get crucified, then he's going to resurrect and ascend. And then you won't be able to see until you see what Psalm 118 tells you, which is that the the stone that you rejected was the Messiah. And until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, you won't see me again. And this is, of course, talking about a spiritual seeing, because the word is used in many other places and contexts to refer to a spiritual way of seeing and perceiving and recognizing. He's lamenting over Jerusalem that they haven't recognized him. And you won't recognize me Because I'm leaving. You won't recognize me until you go back to your scriptures and see what Psalm 18 has to tell you. That the stone that you rejected has become the cornerstone. It's really so profound and so beautiful. And this is what it's talking about. Matthew 23, verse 39 is talking about Jesus, the Messiah, the gospel, the truth. It's not talking about something that's going to happen 2,000 years in the future in the state of Israel for so many reasons. So, I hope that you will learn your history. I hope that you will learn your Bible prophecy. I hope you will learn the word of the day, which is context, and to read things in context. Learn your end times truth. And again, if this is your first time touching these topics with me, 
then I highly recommend that you go and check out the previous episodes in this series because they're very, very important. Most people are deceived on end times events. I certainly was. And I realized as I was researching how every single position is deceived. So learn your history, learn your, your, learn your Bible prophecy, and stay sharp because there are many, many <laughs> false teachings, false teachers, false revivals, just like the Bible warned you about. And there's much more to come on the road. The devil will have his heyday. He will be worshipped. That's been decreed by God. And cling close to the Lord. Pray for discernment that you are not caught up in the deception that is coming on the horizon because many will be deceived. And I hope you're not one of them. Until next time, take care. Hey, thanks for being here. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure you hit that subscribe button. And if you want in-depth Bible studies, free resources, encouragement, or if you just want to get in touch with me, check out danceoflife.com. Until next time, God bless.